Go ahead and open up to Romans 11. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, and we want you to have God's Word to read along with us. We're continuing in this section of Romans 9, 10, and 11, where God or where Paul has shifted his focus into talking about God's plan for the nation of Israel. Now, there's things that he wants us to learn. We've been talking about how God's wanting to show that despite what it might look like, that God is being faithful to keep his promises to his people, the, the Jewish nation. And that's for our benefit to see because even as we were just praying, so often we can lose our faith like, or we can doubt God, that he's being good, that he's keeping his word to us. And so a lot of these examples in scripture are written to remind us, just like at the, for these people, it seemed like God had forgotten about him, but he didn't. He, he was doing great things behind the scenes. We need to be reminded of that. So we don't, so we, we have that faith that we should have in God's word. We should, we should absolutely be confident he's going to be faithful. So in Romans 9, we talked about how God's past dealings with Israel showed his sovereignty, or basically, in what God has done in the nation of Israel, it's shown nothing but him being faithful, because if, it was, if he wasn't sovereignly in control of their, their lives, their sin would have not caused the whole entire nation to be annihilated. He's protected them so that that hasn't happened. So his past dealings show his sovereignty. And then in Romans 10, we talked about how God's present dealings with Israel show his equity in that just like everyone else, they have the same uh, access to the free gift of salvation from God by his grace through faith in Jesus. Everyone in this world has access to that, including them. So God's present dealings with Israel shows equity. And then today in Romans 11, we're going to see how God's promised or future dealings with Israel show his integrity. Or God's promised or future dealings with Israel show his integrity. Basically that he is going to be faithful to do what he has promised them. He's doing it now, but you're going to also, they're going to see it. We're going to see it in the future as he continues to keep those promises. So, We're going to try to get through this whole chapter today. Let me go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we just want to come and not miss out on what it is you want to say to us through your word today. Um, It really seems even in the songs we sang and in what Hillary shared that you're uh, ministering to us even before we get into the text to remind us that you're a faithful God, that if you say something we can have absolute surety, surety that it'll come to pass. It may not always seem that in, in, in our present circumstances, but we will always be able to look back in hindsight and see that at some point, Lord. And we want to live in that reality because, man, we can get fearful. We can get worried. We can be anxious, just, just even as our sister described, because of a lack of faith, because of not confidently believing in what you've told us. And so we, we don't want to just know these things in our head. We want to live them in our lives. So we can have that peace that surpasses all understanding that you talk about. We can have rest in you, in your word, in the promises you made. So we don't have to be fearful. We don't have to be anxious. So teach us from your word. May your Holy Spirit speak to us what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Starting in verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected 
his people, talking about the nation of Israel. And he starts off by saying, by no means. Again, he's, he's asking a question here, that, that a hypothetical question that he can address. And it's a logical one, taking into account Romans 9 and Romans 10. If you guys have been with us through these chapters, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, I really encourage you to go back and listen online so that you can get the complete context of what's being talked about. But just as a brief reminder, um, Israel, Israel's rejection of Jesus is, is basically both consistent with, if you remember, in Romans 9, we talked about God's sovereign plan, that he knew this was going to happen ahead of time. And then in Romans 10, we see that by their own free will, they've made that rejection of God. So that would seem that, well, they've, they've kind of turned their back on God completely but based off of those two truths. So is their fate settled? Is there no chance for them to be reconciled with God? And Paul says, no, absolutely not. And the first example of evidence he goes on to give in proof of this is his, himself. As he goes on in verse 1 to say, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So he says that I'm proof. I'm all the proof you really need that God is not done with the Jewish nation because he, if you guys know the story of Paul, was a Jew that was rejecting God. He was against Christianity. He persecuted, had Christians killed, and then God miraculously got his attention, and he received Jesus as the Lord and Savior. God changed him, all right? So, and, and Paul gives us a good example in that, because if you're ever, and Hillary kind of talked about this a little bit, but if you're ever doubting the faithfulness of God, all you have to do, if you want evidence of it, if you want proof that God is faithful, just look at your own life. You don't have to look too hard to see that God has been faithful in the past, and so he'll be faithful in the present. As I say often, it's his past faithfulness that demands our present trust. But sometimes we've got to take the time to look back. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, I'm the proof. I'm the proof that God's not done with the Jews. And then he goes on to give another example where in another situation, it would seem at first glance that God had rejected his people, that he had given up on them, only to find out that wasn't the case at all. It says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Verse 3 says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Paul quoting 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 10 and 14 there. And he goes on to say in verse 4, But what is God's reply to them? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul quoting 1 Kings 19, verse 18 there. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So if you guys aren't familiar with the book of 1 Kings, there was this prophet of God, Elijah, and he was living in this time period where a lot of people were not following, the, a lot of the Jewish nation were not following the Lord. And to him, it seemed like he was the only one left. To such an extent, in verse 2, he, as it says, he actually started praying against his own people because he felt like they were all against God and they were all against him. But God didn't listen to those prayers from Elijah because he had a better plan in place that Elijah hadn't seen yet. God had basically, and he tells him, he tells him there in verse 4, 
that there was actually a remnant of 7,000 Israelites who had not turned their back on God and worshiped this false god of Baal. And just as in that instance, Paul points out that there is now, there was back then, there is now, there always will be a remnant of the Jewish, of his Jewish brothers and sisters that like him embrace God's grace through believing in Jesus Christ. Paul not focusing so much on the number of believers as much as the surety of God's plan as he points out that a Jewish remnant was chosen and preserved by God's grace, as verse 5 says, and not because of them earning it or doing any works or somehow deserving God's grace, but as verse 6 says, but rather by his foreknowledge or him knowing that these people would choose to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, Paul gives us another great example there, too, of just how sometimes we get caught up in numbers or like what we visibly see God doing and we think that he's not working if we're not seeing something really great happening or if we're seeing a lot of people there or whatnot. And we have to understand that this is something that the Lord's had to teach me over the years and he still has to remind me of often that numbers or what we see happening is not always reflective of what God's doing, okay? How many of you guys have learned that before? All right, now... In this case, like just using the Jewish people as an example, um, if you look at the early church, we just went through the book of Acts before we went through the book of Romans. Who were the very first Christians made up highly of? Jews, right? There's only a few. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, there weren't many. But God took those few and did something really great through them, right? Because the gospel just took off like wildfire or wildfire. Uh, it just took off and went through all ends of the earth, right? So in that instance, he took a little, just a few, the small amount of Jewish believers, and he used it to do great things. And that's something that I've seen God do over and over again throughout my life, through other believers' lives, that has really made me change the way I view things and the way I pray. One of those things that he's changed me in, in thinking is it, over in my time of being a pastor is that you know, used to, I, my mentality used to be like, like, well, you know, God's working if there's a bunch of people in church or there's a bunch of people getting saved. And, and that, that comes from the right place in that we want to see people get saved. We want, if there's a lot of people, that's the assumption that they're getting saved. But what God's shown me over the time, over time and, and, and changed my prayer is that it's much better to have a church filled with big Christians rather than just having a big church. Because here's the thing, God's able to do much greater things through those that are truly wanting to know and follow him. Amen? And so that's changed my prayer and changed my focus and just and used to having, used to struggling with focusing on who isn't here to it being more profitable just to focus who, are, who is here and invest in them. Amen? And so that's important for us to understand that, that lesson. And he's, he's just kind of pointing out here you know, that just because you don't see a bunch of Jewish people getting saved right now, it doesn't mean God's not doing something great. He's doing something great behind the scenes. And so now he goes on to elaborate why it is that some Jewish people don't get saved and why some do. He says in verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, 
in ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So, verse 7, Paul tells us that only the elect or those that God has chosen have attained what they were seeking, that being a relationship with God, which they received by grace of the grace of God through placing their faith in Jesus, just like everyone else. But the rest of the Jewish nation was hardened by their rejection of the good news, which led to them being blind and deaf to the truth of God's word, as Isaiah prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, which Paul quotes in verse 8. Now, some might look at that and think, well, isn't God being unfair? Now, if you've been going through these chapters with me, you guys know, as we already talked about, that God only blinds those that want to be blinded in the rejection of him. That's what we see in scripture. Remember, Pharaoh is a great example of that, of somebody the scripture says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Despite God showing mercy, giving him chance after chance, showing how real he is through his people that were speaking to him, he still hardened his heart before it ever says God hardened his heart. He just gave him over to the choice he was really making. And this is why some people absolutely refuse to believe the good news about Jesus, no matter how many times they hear it. And so some might say, well, does that mean that I'm wasting my time just telling people the gospel? Shouldn't I just seek out and tell the people that are elected or chosen? And what I'd say to you is, if you can figure out who it is that's chosen and elected, you come tell me how to do that. Because I don't know who the heck they are, okay? There's no way. I don't have foreknowledge like God. And because of that, along with what we looked at last week in Romans 10, 13, where it says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. My job is to tell anyone and everyone. It's plain in scripture in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God's desire is that none should perish and all shall come to repentance. That's God's heart. His heart is that everyone be saved, even though not everyone will be. Not everyone will choose to place their faith in Jesus, but that's his heart. So that tells me that it is possible for anyone and everyone to believe in Jesus. So therefore, I'm going to tell anyone and everyone. And it would be wrong of me to assume just because somebody rejects Jesus that they're not going to accept him the second time or the third time or the fourth time. How many of you guys believed in Jesus the first time you were told about him? Amen if you did. That's not something to be ashamed of. But that wasn't me. That was not my story. I heard the gospel multiple times before whatever reason, I actually listened to it one time, and I got it, and I, res I, I understood that I needed to be saved, I needed to be forgiven of my sin, and Jesus was the one I needed to go to, all right? So we need to be those that believe just what scripture says, that anyone and everyone can get saved, and I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity God gives me to share the gospel with people, the good news about Jesus, as many times as I need to, praying that they're going to get saved. Amen? Amen. You guys don't sound excited about that. I'm sure glad people didn't give up on me and kept presenting it till I had some sense knocked into me. And Paul goes on in verses 9, intend to quote Psalm 69 verses 22 through 23 and using the example of somebody sitting at a table eating comfortably to show how the nation of Israel had become. Basically, they become so 
comfortable in their spirit, their religiosity. That's what I should say. Then the fact that we're God's chosen people and we've got all these ordinances and we're good. They've become so comfortable in that that they, they were trusting in their work to be saved rather than the work of Jesus Christ. And that's why they weren't believing in him. So now Paul goes on to address whether there is hope for those that have rejected Jesus. I hope that's Jesus on that phone line. Uh, <laughs> don't make him wait if it is. Um, so he, he's going to address whether uh, there's hope. Okay, like knowing these things about these Jewish people that have chosen to reject Jesus. Is there hope for them to be saved? So he goes on in verse 11. And he says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And he says, by no means. So Paul references Psalm 69 and verse 9, which talked about Israel stumbling. And he addresses the question here, if they've stumbled in not receiving Jesus as the Messiah, does that mean they've fallen away permanently? It being possible to recover from a stumble, but if you actually fall, you hit the ground. And Paul's response is, yeah, absolutely, they can recover. And he goes on to elaborate on God's plan to save the Jewish people, as he says, rather, through their trespasses or sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So, because the Jews have rejected the gospel, God has moved on to focus on us or the Gentiles in saving us, okay? And one of the reasons for that, one of the ways, there's, God wants to save you, he loves you, but one of the reasons one of the things he's using our salvation for is to make the Jewish nation jealous. When they see God in your life, when they see your relationship with Jesus, they will recognize their need for him. That's one of the ways he's using you right now. This being something that we see practically happen all through the book of Acts. Do you guys remember numerous times who would Paul or who would the other apostles preach to first? The Jews, right? They go and preach to the Jews because the Jews had the Old Testament. They had all the prophecies about the, the Messiah. So in his mind, they're going to know this. They're going to receive Jesus. And then when they didn't, he'd move on to preach to the Gentiles. And a lot of those Gentiles got saved, and the Jews got to witness that, right? But when they, um, when, when they yes. But for some of those, okay, let me, let me give you an example of this. Let me try to think of this. How many of you guys, if you guys played sports before? How many of you guys ever had a coach tell you, like, kind of like to look at another player and say, be like them, tackle like them, shoot like them, run hard like them? Did that ever happen to you, all right? Or were you just the, the one that everyone uses the example and said, be like this guy, be like Matt Starley, all right? <laughs> I was not that guy, okay? And I remember this one time where my coach... It was like daily doubles down in Southern Oregon, like in August. It's like 100 degrees. And I was probably like moaning a little louder than I should have when we were doing conditioning drills, something like that. Anyways, it got the coach's attention, and he was just like, suits. He's like, be like your brother and quit your whining, like in front of everyone. This is my younger brother that was like a freshman. I was like a junior. And I'm telling you, all right, that riled me up. It got me 
it got me, it provoked me to jealousy, if you will. It lit a fire in me and made me stop my whining and start running harder and better. Basically, that coach knew exactly what he was doing to get my attention and get what he wanted out of me. And in a way, that's exactly what God is doing through saving Gentiles to the Jewish nation. He wants to rile them up and see, come to your senses. You can have the same thing they have through faith in my son. So God hasn't given up on the Jews at all. On the contrary, he said, what can I do to get their attention? I know I will bless the rest of the world and they'll see that they can have that blessing too through believing in the same Jesus. Amen? All right. Paul going on in verse 12, he says, Now if their trespasses, there being the Jews, trespasses their sin means riches for the world. And if their failure to receive Jesus basically means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? And he's being just, he's, he's explaining common sense. Like if basically Israel's rejection of the Messiah, Jesus, has led to blessing for all of us, for the rest of the world, for the for the Gentiles, how much more when they actually believe in him will that lead to even greater blessing for everyone else? And then he goes on to say in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much then, uh, then as I am in the apostle and as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So Paul's pointing out basically his heart and ministry. Number one, he not only wants to bless Gentiles by giving them the opportunity to receive Jesus and be saved, but he also is honest. He's like, yeah, I'm also exploiting your salvation because I understand God's plan and I'm trying to make my Jewish brethren jealous so they can get saved as well. And he goes on in verse 15 and reiterates, for if there the Jews' rejection means the reconciliation of the world with God, what will their, the Jews' acceptance mean but life from the dead. Again, going on to just point out, man, if, it, if their rejection of Jesus has led to so much blessing for so many other people, imagine the life it's gonna bring when they actually receive Jesus. And he goes on in verse 16. If the dough offered is first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So Numbers 15 Going back to the, the law, the Israelites were told to basically bring what was called the first fruits of like the harvest, like dough. Think of it that way. They took a portion of that dough, they'd bring it to the Lord so that not only that dough that they brought to the Lord was sanctified or blessed, the whole entire dough. Basically, it would allow the blessing of all of their harvest. So most commentators think that what Paul is using this first fruits to describe here is it's a reference to Christians who were Jewish as they are the, the first Christians, the ones we talked about earlier in the, in the, the book of Acts, the, the, the gospels, the first ones that got saved. They were the root of the tree, if you will, as verse 16 says, the tree being God's family. And their salvation was holy or beneficial for the whole lump or the branches, as verse 16 goes on to say, speaking of the rest of God's church, as they were the ones that God inspired the New Testament to be written through, which is what allowed the rest of us, the lump in the branches, to know how to be saved through faith in Jesus. Amen? Tracking with me? Now, some commentators also think that he could be referencing 
the, the original Jewish believers, the patriarchs, if you will, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and their families, saying that basically they were also the first ones that followed God in faith, and the Old Testament was produced by, through them. So we wouldn't even know God if it wasn't for them. So we, we should look to them and be thankful for what God has used them for. He goes on in verse 17, and he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, that being a reference to the Jews who have rejected Jesus, and you, although a wild olive shoot, this is us as Gentiles, were grafted in among the others. That's important because it does not say there that we're replacing them. It says that we were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So Paul is telling us or helping us understand how to think of the family of God uh, correctly, like as an olive tree. And by God's grace, Gentiles, us, were grafted to be a part of that tree or to be a part of that family among the others, as verse 17 says, through our faith in Jesus. But the root of the tree is the nation of Israel, whether that's talking about the first Jewish Christians or the, the, the first Jewish believers, the Jewish patriarchs that believed in God and followed him in faith. They, either one, it's who God revealed himself to us and the rest of the world through. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have the Old Testament. We wouldn't have the New Testament. We wouldn't know who the Messiah was. We wouldn't know our need to be saved. So we need to look at them and, and not become arrogant toward them and, and appreciate how God has used them as part of his plan. This is what Paul's talking about, God's overall plan to save the Jewish nation and the rest of the world, the Gentiles. And this application is, is very fitting here because if you guys know anything about olive trees, one of the ways people take care of them and keep them healthy is when they start to become old, when they start to become unhealthy, when they start to lose their hardiness, one of the practices to cut away the dead or dying branches and graft in some wild olive shoots and that causes new life and growth in the whole tree, which is a great picture of what God is doing in his church. Amen? Now, Paul goes on to give another reason we should not be prideful about our salvation. He goes on to say in verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, or you're only saved because of your faith. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then, or so, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, or those that have not placed their faith in Jesus. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness or his grace. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So, the Jewish nation, remember, is the root of the tree, and we're the, we're the branches. We as Gentiles aren't to think of ourselves as better than the Jewish people because here's the thing. Our salvation is not because we're special, not because we earned it or deserved it, but simply by God's grace, all right, which is available to everyone, the Jews as well. If the Jews, it's, it's their arrogance that has prevented them from receiving Jesus as their Messiah. And the warning here for us 
is don't be arrogant like them and mistakenly think that somehow, oh, I'm better than them or I'm righteous in my own actions. I, it, I deserve what God's given me because if we do, we can be just like them and lose sight of our need for Jesus to save us, to lose sight that, that the righteousness we need from God to be right with him is not anything we can ever do. It's all by God's grace. So as Gentiles, we've been grafted into the tree by God's grace, but if our faith is misplaced or we refuse to respond to that grace, we'll be, find ourselves in the same place as the Jewish nation. So remember, you're saved by grace, okay? But we continue to live with God in that grace or continue in his kindness, as verse 22 says. And Jesus also conveyed the necessity of this when it comes to being fruitful in your life, being changed, being able to follow God and, and live the way he wants. He says in John 15, 5 through 6, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. We need to be fully reliant on the grace of God. Our whole entire lives following Jesus. Amen? Amen. Going on to verse 23. And even they, if they, the Jewish nation, now Paul's going to tell us here that they can still be saved. If even they, if they, the Jewish nation, do not continue in their unbelief, uh, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, again, I want you to note this, okay? It does not say anywhere in this text that Israel has been replaced by the Gentiles or by us, but rather that we've been grafted in to God's family. Other places of scripture refer to it as you've been adopted into God's family, all right? Now, uh, it doesn't say anywhere that Israel's status with God has changed or that all the promises he has made to the Jewish nation are null and void anywhere in the text. And it's, being, it's important to... Read that correctly because sometimes if we're not careful, we can say more than what scripture actually says. And I've seen people do that with this, this particular scripture and saying that the church has somehow replaced Israel. And it says that nowhere in this text, which uh, actually Paul's conveying the exact opposite, basically saying that God's not done with the Jewish nation. Paul pointing out in verses 23 through 24 that if they just simply place their faith in Jesus it'd actually be quite easy for God to graft them into his family. He goes on to elaborate on God's future plans in the remaining verses for the nation of Israel. As he says in verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Okay, somebody tell me what a mystery is in the Bible. That's right. So if you're newer to studying God's word, understand this. Mystery means, whenever you see that, that something's about to be revealed to you by God that you would not have been able to know otherwise. So it means listen up, okay? It says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial, or the idea is a temporary hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, or at that time, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer, this being Jesus, 
will come from Zion or Jerusalem. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, a reference to Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul here is summarizing what he's already told us in verses 11 through 24, that God allowed a partial hardening or a temporary blindness to the Jewish people of the gospel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, in verse 25. Or basically what that means is the full number of Gentiles are saved. I don't know who that is. Might be the person in here. If you're not saved, get saved, and Jesus might be able to come. But all that to say is he knows who that, that last Gentile is that needs to be saved. And at that time, what I believe is that what is called the rapture of the church will happen, where basically God's church is caught up to be with Jesus in heaven, and the beginning of what we call the seven-year tribulation period will begin on this earth. I'd love to go into those in more detail, but those are sermons on their own, and you have access to go listen to our archives on the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, and you can know everything you need to know about those things, all right? I can't go into any more detail, but what Paul says in verse 26 in this way all israel will be saved or basically at that time at that time after god's church is raptured he will turn his attention back to saving the jewish nation who will at that time realize their need to place their faith in jesus as the messiah as their lord paul quoting isaiah 59 here in verses 26 through 27 which spoke of this same time, all right? So hopefully I explained that clear enough, but basically what he's talking about is this future time that's gonna happen. Right now we're in what's called the church age where God is focused on saving the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous, but we're gonna be raptured up to be with the Lord what, before the, the, his wrath and his judgment comes down on this earth for a seven-year time period, what we refer to as the tribulation. And during that time, there's a whole lot of stuff happening. The Antichrist comes in the scene. He, first, he acts like the Jew's friend. Then he persecutes the Jews. And through all of that, they're going to see their need for Jesus. And there's actually a specific number of them that are actually going to be saved that the Bible tells us about in Revelation. Amen? All right. That doesn't mean, though, that every last person of Jewish descent will be saved. But there's a time coming Right now, as a whole, the nation of Israel has rejected the Messiah that they were supposed to accept, but there's a time coming when they're all going to receive and believe in him as a whole. That's the idea. God's word telling us that this is something that has to happen before Jesus comes back. As Jesus himself said in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, he's talking to the Jewish nation. He says, O Jerusalem... Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. When they're ready to receive Jesus, that's when he's going to come back. Verse 25 through 27, clearly telling us again that God is not done with the Jewish nation. If you guys know scripture, there's several promises he's made to them that are like forever promises. 
Genesis 13, 15 is one where he says, I am giving all this land as far as you can see to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. Talking about the promised land of Israel given to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis 17, 7 through 8, God says, I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is an everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will give the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. So when God says things like forever and I will always or everlasting, that means what he says. He's got promises he has kept, he is keeping, and he will continue to keep to the Jewish na nation, which is an encouragement to us because he's not a liar. So if he keeps them to them, he'll keep them to us. And if you've ever wondered why the Jewish nation is so reluctant to give up their land to the surrounding nations that want it so badly, badly that you see in the world and that turmoil in the Middle East, this is the reason why. It was never theirs to give, all right? God gave it to them, and nobody else has a claim on it because of that. And the truth of the matter is they actually occupy a lot less of the land that is rightfully theirs according to what God ordained, all right? It's important to know that, all right? When you're looking at politics and stuff, we look through the lens of the Bible. doesn't really matter what subjective truth out there tells you. This is what God says, and what God says is what matters. Amen? All right. Paul, Paul going on to tell us, verse 28, as regards the gospel, they, the Jews, enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they... The Jews are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Or they can't be undone. So even though at this time it seemed like the Jews were enemies of God and being against Jesus, they were still loved by him because of his grace in choosing them to be his people. But also at the very least because of the promises God made to their forefathers who followed him in faith. That the Lord was going to be faithful to keep. Paul pointing out a truth in verse 29 that goes far beyond just showing that he's going to be faithful to Israel because what verse 29 is means is that he's not only going to not give up on them, he's never going to give up on you, all right? He hasn't changed his mind about the Jewish nation, and he'll never change his mind about us. 2 Timothy 2.13 telling us, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Think of that, church. Because there's so often in my life, I don't know if about you, but where I hear that voice in my head that says, you've blown it. There's no way God can use you anymore. There's no way he's gonna take you back. And what this tells me is that is an absolute lie of the enemy. That no matter how many times you mess up, I'm not saying we want to mess up. We want to follow God. We want to do what he says. We don't want to go back to our old lives. But when we do mess up, here's the thing. It's never too bad that there's not a way back. The path of restoration is always there. As quickly as we're ready to repent and turn back to God, he's there with open arms waiting for you and to restore you. When he's called you and gifted you to things, those are irrevocable. He doesn't change his mind. 
You might need to be restored, and that might take some time, but God wants to restore you. And maybe that's a word for somebody that feels like they've blown it so bad. There's no way God would forgive them or welcome them back. I'm telling you right now, God is here with his arms wide open, ready to receive you. Just turn back to him. Verse 30, for just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, Israel's disobedience, so they, Israel too, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they, Israel, also may now receive mercy. For God has co-signed all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So the Gentile Christians should have understood what it was like to be disobedient to God because they were all sinners. They got saved by God's grace, right? So he's saying, you guys of all people should understand that what, God, what God's mercy is because he's shown it to you. And that mercy that was shown to you is at least in part so Israel can see it and they can receive that same mercy in their lives. The idea of verse 32, and I love this. Verse 32 is awesome because what it is is, is God has basically shown Every single person in this world, Jews and Gentiles alike, that they are sinners and disobedient to his law. Why did he show you that? So that everyone can see the mercy that he's offering them. God's not showing you you're a sinner to just say, you suck, Chris. You're horrible. No, he's showing it to you so that you can understand your need to be saved. And that God has displayed great mercy in saving you despite you not deserving it, right? That's great. That's what makes it good news. Because we deserve judgment, but God says, no, I love you so much, Chris. I want to show you mercy. Receive it through faith in Jesus. And in response to God's great plan of salvation, which Paul uh, has just gone through in Romans 9 through 11, he's just left in this place of, I don't even know what to say other than just worship you, God. And he says in verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches in wisdom in knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Paul basically acknowledging, God, I'm, I'm looking at your plan of salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles. Like As he's explaining it to us, he's just overwhelmed. And he's like, this is far beyond anything I could ever understand, far beyond anything I could ever come up with. You are wise and, and merciful in a way that I can't even fully comprehend to, to come up with this great plan to save everyone in the world. Paul quoting Isaiah 40, 13 to reiterate that, man, your wisdom is like uncomprehendable and it's inscrutable. Like there's no way anyone should question you because you just think on a whole nother level than, I, than we could ever think. And he quotes Job, uh, Job 41, 11, talking about how God's given us such grace. He's shown us such mercy in our lives that no matter what you think you're giving God, he's always going to have given you so much more so that he's, he doesn't owe us anything. He's, not, he's given us more than we deserve by showing us such grace in our lives. Amen? And he goes on in verse 36, and he's left saying, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God's plan to save us was all his doing. Or it was 
from him, as verse 36 says. God wanted to save you and me, despite us not deserving it. We would have never seen our need to be saved from sin without his help. And even if we did, we wouldn't have been smart enough to come up with the plan that he came up with to save us. And his plan could only be accomplished through him. Even if we came up with a plan, we couldn't have seen it through it was only something that God could do in sending his son who lived a blameless life without any sin on this earth and died a death that I deserve, that my sin is what nailed him to that cross, our sin. And he died that willingly so that the just penalty for our sin could be paid for and we could be forgiven and we could be saved. And because of that, because it's through him, it's from him, then his plan is to him, or it's ultimately for his glory. We were created to have a relationship with God for his pleasure, is Revelation 4.11. He doesn't just love you, he likes you. It brings God pleasure to know you and have a relationship. It doesn't even bring me pleasure to know some of you guys, but he... It brings him pleasure. That's what it says. I wouldn't believe it. if I wouldn't believe I brought him pleasure if I did, he didn't tell me in his word. And we find our purpose and the resulting fulfillment in our lives only through bringing him that glory and honor so other people can see how awesome he is just like we have. And because of those truths, Paul just says, to him be the glory forever. I just, I just want to live my life for you, Lord, glorifying you. And all God's people say, amen. amen. Now, before we finish up here, some of you might be wondering why I've avoided getting into or explaining theological terms that associate with these chapters like Calvinism or God's sovereignty in choosing us versus Arminianism or our free will in choosing him. And I would say one reason is, I don't, uh, listen to this, I don't need to teach you theology to have a solid understanding of God's word, okay? I'd rather teach you God's word so that you have a solid theology. Amen. And what I mean by that is that it is more prudent that you let God's word define what you believe about theology instead of hearing what somebody's theology says and letting that define what you believe about God's word, all right? I am so thankful that when I first got saved, I was taught, just read the Bible for yourself. Just read it. And before I even understood the word theology, I already had a plain understanding of what I believe scripture taught so that when I heard things, I was like, oh yeah, I believe that or I disagree with that. That is the best way to learn God's word and receive it, and understand it, okay? Now, another reason is that it sometimes amazes me how some can talk about certain spiritual concepts from God's word with such confidence and certainty that I just can't seem to fully comprehend in my tiny little brain. I, it, it inspires me. I'm like, I wish I had a brain like that. But it, is, it brought me comfort that I found out that like some other theologians feel the same as me. Because I found this great quote from Adam Clark. Maybe you guys, some, some of you used his books or his uh, commentaries. But he says, it is strange that with such a scripture as this before their eyes, talking about Romans 11, men should sit down coolly 
and positively write about counsels and decrees of God formed from all eternity, of which they speak with as much confidence and decision as if they had formed a part of the counsel of the Most High and had been with him in the beginning of his ways. I love that. Because in my opinion, some of the theological concepts that people like to get in arguments, I don't mind getting discussions, but they argue over them. I really feel that it's just man's best attempt to explain what is unexplainable. And I'm all right with explaining and discussing God's word up to the point that I don't start making presumptuous statements that go above what it actually says. And if I get to a point where I truly can't or fully explain how two truths that kind of exist together in tension, for instance, God's sovereignty versus our responsibility or election versus free will, I'm okay with not having to fully explain it any further than what Scripture actually says. Because guess what? I'm not God. I'm not omniscient. I don't have foreknowledge. I can't think on the same level as him, so it makes sense that I don't understand everything to the degree that he does. And I most certainly don't need to have all my questions fully answered to be in awe of what I do understand. And to understand and be in awe of the grace and mercy that I do understand God has shown me. Amen? That will lead me to worship him. And in fact, I would argue that that is what we see here with the Apostle Paul. It's not only what he does know about God that he shared with us, but it's what he doesn't know that also leads him to that place of being in awe and worship of the God that saved him. Amen? Amen. All right, people. I'm going to have the worship team come back up here, but here's what I want to leave you as we get done with this section of Romans and we start Romans 12. Almost everything in this world, in a person's life, until they place their faith in Jesus, is a gamble. And what I mean by that is you have no way of knowing for sure what is going to happen. You might win, you might lose. Things might turn out good, they might turn out bad. But the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, that all changes. Because the one thing that is never a gamble is what God has told you in his word. The promises that he has made to you. There is no gamble with God. It's only certainty. Now, it doesn't always feel this way because, as you've experienced, we have hard things that we go through in this life. And because we don't have foreknowledge, because we're not omniscient like God, we don't see how things are going to turn out. And that can lead to us being fearful and scared and adversity. But one of the reasons God has included Romans 9 through 11 in his word is because the nation of Israel is a prime example to us of how God is always going to be faithful to his people. Even when we're unfaithful, like they have been unfaithful, because it's not dependent on us, it's dependent on him and his grace. And even when, by all accounts, what you see, your perception of the situation looks like everything is going to hell, it's not. It's not falling apart. It's all falling into place because God has got you firmly in his grip. God chose the nation of Israel sovereignly. He's dealt with them equitably, and he has promised that he will never give up on them eternally. And here's the thing. There's a lot of generations that studied these things that we're looking at, and they hadn't even gotten to see what God has done with the nation of Israel in our lifetime. He established a nation in a day, fulfilled his word, 
and he's preserving and protecting. And so we of all people should even understand to a greater degree than Paul and when this was being written that God has been faithful to keep his word and he will be faithful. And that's meant to motivate us because here's the thing. If we look at our past, we see God's sovereignly protected us and he's always been with us in control of all our circumstances, working them for our good. All you have to do is look in your past and see instance of instance of where God's, I saw God's hand in my life even before I was saved, if I'm being honest. I see what he was prepping and preparing, even in things that I thought were horrible, like my parents getting divorced, something he didn't make happen. That's because of sin, but he used it for my benefit. And if we look at our present, we see his equity in our life. We see that we, he's been more than fair. Even just looking at your salvation. I didn't deserve to be saved. I turned my back on God. I wasn't living for him for the first 20 years of my life. And I had my chance to receive him over and over again. And I spit in his face. And yet he still came after me. He's been more than fair. Giving me more than I deserved. And I'm going to tell you right now. You can bet that in your future, you're going to see God keep every promise he's ever made to you. If you don't see it here, you'll see it in the next life when you're with him in eternity. But rest assured, he will keep those promises. So we're going to have a response time right now. We're going to worship the Lord. And hopefully, like Paul, we come to this place where we're just like blown away by God. We are as we've been going through chapters 9 through 10, and we see this plan from the very beginning to save the whole world, really. Starting with the first people he chose, the, the Jewish nation, and then through them, the Gentiles or us, and how that plan right now is still going until the end of time, till Jesus comes back. You know, there's a verse that I pray that I believe it in faith as much as uh, Apostle Paul believed it. And that's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, and I am certain, and I believe when Paul said certain, he means this. He probably had his bad days where he doubted this, but I want to be like Paul where I'm certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I don't want to just believe it certain in my head, but like I said last week, I want it in my heart. I want to live with that certainty so when that mountain comes in front of me or that hard thing I'm going through, that pain that probably, you know, of losing somebody close, it's going to stick with you through your whole life here, but believing one day it's going to be gone when I'm with Jesus. I want to live with that certainty every day of my life. That's a, a benefit of the abundant life that Jesus wants to give us, because if you don't have him in your life, you can't live with that certainty. And that's a good reminder that if you've come here today and you want that certainty, you want to have the promises of God in your life, you want to know who it was that created you and experience the satisfaction and fulfillment that can only come with living with him 
and for him. You can have that today through placing your faith in Jesus. We're going to have our prayer team around the room, and you can come up and receive him. Somebody last week confessed their faith in Jesus. They received him. They repented of their sin and understood their need for him to save them. And they're saved today by God's grace. And they're receiving these promises today as a child of God. And they can know that what's being said in this word is for them. And they can bank on it 100% because God will be faithful. Anyone in here can make that choice. I hope most of us have made it. But we need to be reminded so when we leave this place, we live in that surety of what's been promised to us. Amen? If you need prayer, come up and get it with somebody in the prayer room. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much. Father God, I admit that sometimes I I doubt that surety and just even going through these chapters has been such a blessing to me and seeing your faithfulness, be reminded of your faithfulness to your people. It ministered to me and reminding me of your faithfulness in my life and that you're gonna be faithful. Even I can praise you now for what I haven't seen knowing that I have no reason to doubt you keeping every word you've ever had. And we want to live in that truth, Lord. We want to live in that reality. Help us do that, Father. Help us in our unbelief. Help us believe. As we worship you, Lord, may we sing these truths where we really mean them, where we just hear your voice as your spirit ministers to us and reminds us of what we've heard today so that we can know it and live it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.